0: First fielder, he's gone to the dog.
1: Welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast, man. Do we have a good show for you today? I've been waiting to get this guy on here. I guess ever since I've started talking about podcasts, always see him at all the major events. We've known each other for many years, and uh, he's got a great story to tell, uh, and knows how to tell it, and. uh, so we're going to introduce our guest here in just a minute. I wanted to uh, do a little house cleaning here. Uh, we do get requests from time to time for people that are trying to promote the sport of coon hunting, and we're 100% for that. As long as it's legal and as long as it's treating everybody fair, we want to be a part of it if we can tell you about it. But anyway, Sean Pinckney. In South Carolina contacted me and said, Steve, would you please mention the fact that we're having the King's Tree Jamboree Joy Super Hunt on February the 10th, 11th, and 12th in King Street, South Carolina? Now, I remember Mr. Melvin, uh, Melvin Brown being at, from King Street, I believe, but at any rate, from back in my grand, early Grand American days and so forth. But I'll try to read this real quick so not bore you with it. But once again, I'll give you the dates. They are February 10th, 11th, and 12th. On Thursday, they start out with a $100 Pup Derby with a $2,000 added purse and a $100 open event with a $1,000 added purse. Uh, The deadlines are 7 p.m. on those. So that's on Thursday, um, February 10th. Then on the eleventh, again they're going to have a hundred dollar pup derby with two thousand added, another hundred dollar open with a thousand added. So that's kind of a ditto of what you had on Thursday night, and then Saturday night looks like more of the same. So they're doing the same deal each night: a uh, two thousand dollar added on a hundred dollar pup derby and a hundred or a thousand dollar added on a hundred dollar open event. Uh, and there are $500 Pro Classics times three on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You PKC boys, you know all about what the Pro Classics are. I'm not going to try to describe all that. But anyway, entry reservations are being accepted beginning on January 11th. So that's, that's already 10 days or so before we're recording this. So... Uh, the event must have a maximum of 24 entries reserved by February 2nd to avoid cancellation. So get those entries in, get out there. The address is 375 Nelson Boulevard in King Street, South Carolina. And that is sponsored by Joy Dog Food. All right. I do have a, <clears throat> a note here that I want to go over real quick just to say thank you to a nice fella that happens to be from my state of West Virginia who took the time to send me an email. And I always appreciate hearing from the listeners. Uh, you know, if nobody's listening out there, why am I doing this? Right. Anyway, I'm going to read this real quick and, and, uh, give a shout out to this fella hillbilly up there in the, in the hills of West Virginia. Hello, Steve. My name's Brandon Thompson. I live in Cool Ridge, West Virginia. Just thought I'd send you a message to let you know how I enjoy your podcast and the book Gone to the Dogs. I don't have any other way to reach you but through this email because I'm not on any social media. I met you probably 15 or 20 years ago at the Cold City Coon Hunters Club. I've hunted with John Sturgill and Les Boland quite a bit. Now, there's a couple to draw to right there, fellas. Those guys I've been (laughs) knowing, John and Les, for at least 100 years, two super, super guys. But uh, but don't take anything they tell you uh, straight up. You want to analyze it. A little bit, but anyway, I hunt and breed and train leopard hounds and curs, and have my own strain of leopards, which is the Glade Creek line. I had these dogs for 22 years and hunted leopards for 30 years. I've coon hunted most of my life, but have not competition hunted a lot. Just thought I'd send an email and let you know. I appreciate all the work you've done for the hound and dog hunting community. If you ever need anything, please let me know if you're ever coming through Beckley and would like to stop for a visit, give me a shout, and he gives me his phone number and all. You know, man, I really appreciate that, uh, Brandon. And if I get back up to the old stomping grounds, buddy, you bet I'll keep your number uh, handy, and we'll go and uh, sit down and have a cup and talk about those good leopard dogs of yours. Well, I tell you what, we have got a guest today that I think was going to entertain you. Is going to interest you. I know that he will. He's always been an interesting guy for me to talk to at the hunts and so forth. And I don't know how many years I've known him, but we're going to try to figure that out, milk that all down. I am really, really happy to bring to our mic uh, tonight my good friend, Mr. Ray conrad of bright eyes lights ray how in the world are you doing
0: i couldn't be better steve it's just a cold day here in south carolina and we're working trying to get lights out to all these customers that, that we got lights promised to and it just continues to snowball for us but we really appreciate all we get from the customers and i'm just as tickled to death to be on your little podcast today
1: well i tell you what ray it is just a uh, a little effort here uh, to get out, to get the word out among coon hunters, get them talking to each other and visiting with each other, and trying to keep this sport going. You know, it's <clears throat> yeah. I've been around it a long time. I know you have. Uh, maybe not as many years as I have, but uh, but uh, we certainly love it, and and we want to see it continue as long as we can. I was thinking as we were uh, anticipating this visit today about how long that you've been building the the bright eyes light. And I think I mentioned to you earlier uh, that I remember my first uh, recollection of bright eyes was seeing you out on the overhang area there, what I call the porch area of the big white vendor barn. Uh, there in Orangeburg at the Grand American with your bright eyes lights, and I remember it being a compact battery pack. Uh, I believe it was a belt light at that time. You correct me if I'm wrong. But how long has that been now, Ray?
0: Wow, Steve, it's been um um probably uh, that was in the mid '90s, probably around '94. If I had, I think that's when it was, was ninety four. The first year I went to the Grand American and um, getting a spot at the Grand American, then just to take something was a was an unbelievable feat. Just to be able to get there and you had to wait in a line of vendors before you could even get moved into the main barn. So I spent several years out under that canopy in the snow and all different types of things. And you know, the first year uh, that we went down, I had. You know, just started using this different type of battery than anybody else had used. It was these nickel metal hydride batteries and a four thirds A cell. And I started using those batteries and, and built a few lights and things really looked well and it went really good. And we decided we'd go down there. So my brother helped me and we sat in an old shed and built about, I don't know, 25 or 30 and took them down and sold every single one of them on Friday. So we went back home because I only live a couple hours from there, and we stayed up all night building lights that night, went back on Saturday and sold 25 or 30 more. And that's what started us, and, and you know, we've we just continued to rock on with it since then.
1: Well, you know, I think that's probably you started what I would call a trend there because I've particularly noticed that, at well, the two events that I, I guess I kind of get to, uh, kind of out of the corner of my eye, I see what you're doing there, eh, because we, when I'm with the um, CNH Publishing booth with Cooner or Full cry with Terry Walker, there, kind of, we're usually in the same general area uh, at both the Grand American and at Autumn Oaks, and uh, the last few years it looks like there's been a trend there to hear you come in there and you've got a great big beautiful s- display. And, uh, and, and you got a great, uh, uh, staff of people that are working with you by the way. And, and I've always said, you can kind of judge a person by the people, you know, that they pick to, to be associated with. And, and your, your man, Wes and your man, Dennis, and of course your wife, Trina, and maybe there are others, but always I see a great big bunch of bright eyed light, bright eyes lights. And then by... I looking around by uh, Friday morning or early Friday afternoon or whatever. Where's Ray? Well, he's already sold out, gone home. Has that been kind of a trend for you here in the last well, few
0: years? As Steve, truthfully, for probably about the last four to five years, it has. The business has just gotten so big that it's it's difficult to pull the lights away from people that have already ordered to get them to take them to the event. And so we, you know, we work hard, we work seven days a week at bright eyes. I, my, my crew during this time of year works seven days a week. And, you know, we our retail customers. We try to keep them inside of about 10 days to get their light, And sometimes we get a little out of that, but most of the time we try to stay in that, but we have been taking for three years now, nearly twice what we used to take 10 15 years ago and still that's not enough hmm. and it's just a it's just a humbling amazing experience to see that from customers and you know one of the probably the, the greatest things for me is we run out and then we'll sit there and take orders and sometimes we'll have 50 60 70 customers that just come up and Give us their money and we write their order down and we ship them to them free. And just to be trusted that much by the coon hunting world and my customers is is just amazing to me. And Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of what, what we've been able to put together.
1: Well, you should be for sure, and uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Bright Eyes Lights and go do- all down that <clears throat> rabbit path, as we like to say, but I want to talk a little bit about Ray Conrad before we get started in that uh, aspect. Um, you know, wh- how did you get involved in this thing called Coon Hunt?
0: Oh, wow, Steve. Um, my grandfather uh back in the day they they didn't have coon around here much. And so they hunted possum. They had dogs and they hunted possum. And then my dad, you know, as he got older, he he hunted grade dogs. I mean there wasn't no registered dogs, just a bunch of grade dogs. And most of them were kind of black and tan looking dogs, some of them red bone looking. And when I was born in 1962, I'm fixed to be 60 years old. So, probably sixty-seven, sixty-eight. I started tagging along with dad and these old gray dogs. And I mean, we'd just tree coons and possums and whatever we could tree is what we were treeing. And we We just went for the fun of it. My dad worked third shift at a local textile mill here. And um, so he was off Friday and Saturday night. So we lived for Friday and Saturday night. It wasn't a question of whether you were going to go hunting. It's, what time we leaving and and where we going so <laughs> we uh we lived through that, and I guess probably the early seventies seventy two seventy three we started seeing just a smittering of walker dogs coming into the area that were registered, and then my dad you know he he wanted to try some of those, so he did and and we hunted some gray dogs and some registered dogs, probably all the way up through the seventies. And then in the 80s, to be very honest with you, we got, went almost exclusively with registered dogs and, and mainly with walker dogs at that point. Um, mm. it seemed though back then the, we just had a, the walker dogs were very balanced at that time. In the 70s, you registered dogs, you had to go through a hundred to find one that would bark up a tree. And, um, uh, then in the 80s, it seemed like they kind of started balancing theirself out and you'd have, you know a lot more out of a litter that would be make tree dogs and so we hunted them we hunted uh particularly we we liked the Yak and river line of Jimmy's, and uh we hunted that line a lot cause it's right here in my area, and we Jimmy meeks a good friend of mine, and we we hunted that line a long time, and then uh you know things started going a little more to the tree side and and I thought I would change that up so I decided I'd go back to black dogs. So I started probably back around 90, 92, 93, I started hunting black and tans. And I pretty much had black and tans since then. I've owned a couple, three walker dogs during that time, but I've always had a black dog here too. And uh, so I've been, you know, I've been doing this since I was just a little kid. And, you know, before tracking systems, I remember buying... I ordered the first MN10 in this country around here to start using. And I think about all the nights that we spent laid around a campfire waiting on a dog to come back because we had no idea where in the world he was. And uh, we just build a big fire and, and sit and bring the Coleman stove and make oyster stew or egg sandwiches or whatever we wanted to have that night. And I mean, this was just a ritual every Friday and Saturday night of my life. And, um, you know, then the MN10, we, we got to where we didn't have to do that as much because I,
1: let's just tell people what an MN10 was.
0: An MN10 was a 10 channel tracking system that was mounted. It was a little box mounted onto a big Yagi antenna. Uh, generally it ran in the 216 to 219 frequency range and you get your MN10, and a, and at the time, there was no better collar you could get than a Johnson collar. Everybody wanted a Johnson collar. And uh so that's what we had. We had Johnson collars and an MN10, and it had seal batteries, you know, the old seal batteries on them. And you'd get the D cell batteries, and they would last you for years. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, you know, the, the, batter, the collar lasts you longer than a dog a lot of time. <laughs> but, uh, but we uh we use those things and and you know that was the way of life for many 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 years and uh you know within the tracking industry there were other trackers you could buy but it kind of started there and then then wildlife you know came in with a three channel and a 10 channel and a 64 channel and a 100 channel unit there were just multitudes of different ones that got involved in the end and um and then, then, you know, I guess the next advancement after that would have been they came out with that little tiny tracker
1: mm-hmm. that
0: they used to call it, yep. you know. And you could use that and track all these collars, and it worked pretty good, but it was limited due to the antenna being so small. It took a little more finesse, you might <laughs> right. say, to get it to get figured out where you want it to be. But then we had another company that's, uh called Marshall Radio that was is big in all type of military contracts and things out from uh, Salt Lake City um these guys started building these Marshall collars which were hotter than any of the other collars out there so at that point you could take that little unit and the Marshall collars and boy you really had something it really worked well and that went really well. And then all of a sudden now we got GPS and we're all spoiled to death. We stand there and watch them as they move each foot nowadays. So it's just <laughs> it's just weird, you know, what we've yeah. been through. But it's uh, you know, hunting has been something that's I don't know, I guess I guess the day I die, somebody had to come feed my dogs, I reckon, because I'll be gone. <laughs> but I just love to have an old dog around.
1: Well, you know, I guess our experience is a lot the same. And if we go through a, a thousand coon hunters, we'll probably get the same story pretty much with variations, mm-hmm. you know, and and that was me. I went to m- Michigan. I had no uh, idea about telemetry equipment. And my friend up there, Mark Blount, who was the first guy to build any custom dog boxes. Mark would, had been an engineer for, uh, AMF scamper division up there in the trailer business and elk, elk And he started building dog boxes out of scrap, uh, RV trailer, uh, uh, supplies you know and called it the blount custom built well mark got one of these dt3 collars our receiver which was put out for wildlife you know it was similar to your mn10 that you talked about it so i bought a collar and used my mark's uh receiver and we could track three dogs uh you know and that was my beginning with it with all that well okay right now uh we've got the background we know you know that you coon hunted as a kid and you coon hunted with your dad and that's very much my experience too uh somewhere along the line you decided to go to school what what kind of uh school did you go to and what kind well, of training and so forth did you did, did well us-
0: steve i went to um you know i went to school Grade school and all here in Rock Hill. And I went to Northwestern High School. And you got to remember that my family was, uh, I'm, we had plenty to eat. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that, but we were very limited in the ability to go to school or whatever we wanted to do. It, my dad worked at the mill. My mom was disabled. Um, so you worked. You know, when I turned 15, I went to work. You, you worked. Uh, But I still continued to go to high school. I ran track and cross country and played baseball in high school. And I was offered two or three scholarships for academics and track when I got ready to graduate. And the first school that I went to was um, Spartanburg Methodist College over here in Spartanburg, South Carolina, not very far away. And I went over there with the intention of going there and then going on to Clemson and getting an electrical engineering degree. Well, things kind of got sidetracked and I ended up doing Spartanburg Methodist and then took some other classes through South Carolina and uh, ended up with a chemistry degree. And uh, lo and behold, I went to work for a local paper mill here that, where you can make money. That's where everybody worked that made money in this area. So I uh I worked there for a while, and they were bringing me in every time some guy would be sick or need a surgery or something. They'd bring me in to fill his spot, and you had to get 90 days in before you'd be permanent. Well, every time I kept getting sent out, sent out, sent out. Well, lo and behold, Duke Energy called me. I had put in applications there, and they called me and wanted me to come to work in their chemistry department. So I I did. I went to work for Duke Energy in the chemistry department and uh, worked there for right at 21 years. Um, And I credit my employment with Duke Energy truly for all just about of the technical education and all that I've gotten. Uh, Duke, in my situation, they would send me to a week of training every five weeks. So I was trained on all types of systems, controls, Um, people think chemistry, they think about a beaker and a titrator or whatever, and chemistry nowadays really and truly isn't that anymore. It's more of of resin columns and washing different elements off of a resin column, and they all come off at a certain time based on their affinity for the column. And then you then you measure the uh how much conductivity the water can conduct based on what's washed off and all that correlates back to tell you how many PPB parts per billion of that element you might have in this water. And it's uh so it's a very oh god it's a very intricate science nowadays. And, You're
1: way above my pay grade, right? Yeah, now.
0: and so <laughs> it's. I learned to work on. I can do any type of electronic work down to board level electronic work, and um, you know, and, and just normal wiring work and stuff. All that's always came real easy to me. Um, but I took that, you know, that knowledge that do bestowed on me i mean it's better than um, it's probably better than three college educations if you want to know the truth what duke trained me to do and um when i was about 35 i guess we started this business i just happened to run in to a guy that sold batteries that was telling me about these little batteries and i had an old light from another company and it had quit so i I called this guy and ordered a battery pack and just threw it in there to see if it'd work. And lo and behold, it was just unbelievable. And, and Bright Eyes was born when I was 35. Well, I continued to work for Duke and run Bright Eyes until I was 41. And Duke came out and offered an early retirement package at that time. And obviously, they were trying to get the older guys to retire, but I had a lot of years and it paid me pretty good to leave. So I just took a early retirement from Duke and went bright eyes, full board. Well, my wife was a little nervous when I did that, but, but we did it. <laughs> and, uh, and it's been a, it's been an unbelievable journey for me. I mean, it, it's like, I guess if I had to put it into words, it's bright eyes to me makes me feel like I won the lottery. If that makes anything makes sense. It just, The inside of me is just so ecstatic that I've been able to take something that I love and make it into a business that I can provide for my family and take care of my customers and and just have this feeling that every time I walk into an event, you know, I'm never nervous that somebody's going to come up and be upset because we did something. I mean, we just don't operate that way. If if they come up there, we're gonna take care of that customer. They don't have to act like that. We don't ever have that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just so blessed, Steve. It's just unbelievable.
1: Well, I think Ray, you know, a lot of us in this uh, this game of coon hunting have looked for ways to make it work. You know, where we could coon hunt for our day job you know and i was one of those guys that really kind of got into it not really meaning to you know i i uh through the graces of united kennel club and fred miller you know i was offered a job back there to run the the field operations department and uh you know my basic training on that had been a little secretary treasurer for a coon club there in southern west virginia like the letter that i read at the beginning of the podcast uh you know just helping out just doing what i could when it was event day or whatever and little by little you i guess you gain knowledge and uh if if you conduct yourself in the right way uh when you're in public and around people and all Somebody takes notice, you know, and I was just fortunate in that regard to be able to have a job, you know, in a sport that I loved that, that lasted me for my entire career. So I was very fortunate in that regard, but I think there's a lot of guys out there now. And I look back over, uh, the years and the ones that have stood out and have been successful I don't mind mentioning some of the names, you know, Dane Phillips with, uh, the nightlight company, you know, night years night ago. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And, you know, started in his bedroom and, uh, you know, building the Coon Hunter's favorite little, uh, six volt light, you know, with the rheostat on it and built that, you know, into, to pretty much an empire there for a while. And you look at our good friend, John Wick, who started sewing, clothing and his wife in their bedroom, uh, you know, and built it into an empire. Uh, nobody wears a brown duck or brown, uh, uh hunting coat at a, uh, out event that they don't think about John wick. Although John is not actively Ah uh, sewing clothing now, but on and on it goes, John, of course, was the guy that invented the frog leg waiter that we all wear, you know chap sewed to a boot. Think about the impact that that's had, you know down through the years but what i what I wanted to touch on with you, Ray, when we uh, I thought about us getting together, and I've wanted to have this conversation for a long time you know the longevity you know uh, i would venture to say and i'm just pulling this out of the air and i don't know this to be true <clears throat> but i don't think there's been a light manufacturer that is long standing uh under the same name and perhaps, uh, you know, I look way back and I mentioned Jim, Gatt- I mentioned, uh, Dane Phillips, and then there was Jim Gatton with sunburst light corporation and different ones down through the years, but those guys, God bless them have gone on, you know, to their greater reward. But now, you know, you've been at this thing a long time at the same address. Is there anybody out there that's actually been building lights continuously uh, under the same brand the way you have for this many years?
0: Well, probably not, Steve. You know, there's there's some companies out there that are older. Their name is a little bit older than Bright Eyes, but they've changed ownership.
1: Correct. Sometimes. Correct.
0: Um, now, there there is one other gentleman that has been in business a long time, and I'll give him his kudos. He's a great friend and a, a great guy that I talk to generally just about every day he's getting up in years right now too he's about your age Steve 75 (laughs) and uh but he still works every day and does a good job with everything and his name is Sam Davis out of Tennessee and uh Sam has been building lights longer than me and he I would say Sam you know by a few years not a long time but a few years and Sam and I we uh one of the beauties of the situation is years ago when we were all in business, Sam was really the person that supplied all the guys with their parts and things. And, um, he wasn't really in the retail end of it much. He basically did the wholesale end. And, but back then, whether it was Cajun with Bobby Barber or, or bandit with Basil Kittle or, or Coon Buster with Don Hightower or whoever it might be back in the day. Um, we all just got along so great, you know, and if somebody needed some parts, somebody needed some heads because they did, couldn't get a hold of them from somewhere, we shared our stuff amongst each other and helped each other and did all we could that way. And, and that's one thing I'll say about Sam and I's relationship. We have a relationship where we we are generally friends. And uh, we've helped each other tremendously on all different types of projects that we've worked on. So uh, I I will give that gentleman a big kudos. He he's been a big influence on me, mm-hmm. and uh, and I I hope that I've been somewhat of an influence on him over the years too to try to help him when he needs help. But um, yeah, we've been going at it for for a long time. Yeah, some of these light companies, you know, Steve, I have. Probably seen. Oh, me and the wife were talking about this the other night. I'll bet you if you could take the magazines and sit back and go through them for since we started, there would probably be one hundred like companies or more that had advertised that are gone. Hmm. It, but right. it used to be back in the day, these people would get in business for all oh, thinking they were going to make a big lick or whatever, and they'd stay about two years, and when these warranty items start coming back and they didn't build any, you know, any profit in there for doing warranty work, then all of a sudden they're out of business. And we've seen that over and over again. It's still continuing to this day. We see that a lot. But um yeah, it's it's been a it's been an interesting road. Well celebrate. I'm
1: sure that it has. And you know, for the layman out here looking you'd say, well what is there to a light? You know, there's <clears throat> there's a box what holds some kind of battery, there's a cord, there's a switch, and there's a headpiece, you know, with a bulb of some kind in it. And that's it. I mean, you know, a light is a light is a light, but it's not quite that easy, is it?
0: No, sir, not. You know, back in the day when everybody used a blue ring head, you know, just the old blue ring head, and everybody ran a 12V30 or a 12V32 bulb in their light, it was pretty simple. If you want to know the truth, if you knew some basic electronics, you could build a switch that would work. And it was pretty simple. Um, in today's electronics, you have to make sure that you stay on the cutting edge of everything. You have to keep up with LEDs as they come out. And and which company is putting out the strongest LED? Will it work in our application? Will it hold up in our application? Will it... Um, you know, because you'll see burned LEDs, and then you got these colors, all these colors, and we recently, just in the last three years, have added this uh, laser beams, you know, with these green lasers on there, uh, try to keep some of these guys from going blind in these night hunts where they can show them where the coon <laughs> is, and, uh, but no, to answer your question, it's very difficult at this point for a person that's not, electronically savvy to get into this business and stay in. They may get it to work for a little while, but when they start rolling back in, then then all of a sudden they're in a mess. I get um, you. So, but it's, uh, there's several nice guys out there that are doing a good job, though. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to sit here and say that Bright Eyes is the only company that's doing a good job because we're not. There are several companies that's doing a good job. And, uh, you know, and there's plenty of business out there for all of them. Uh, but I, you know, I just love it. I just look forward to everything. I spend every evening with my laptop in my lap or my iPad in my lap, looking at parts and sitting there. And I usually fall asleep in my chair, <laughs> looking at looking at some new LED or some new drive circuit that might work. And and you know, I I guess I just got it on the brain. I guess Steve. That's what I want to do is spend my time doing that.
1: Well, you bring back, back some memories, and I'll throw this little funny story in. Back in my days with Coonhound Bloodlines magazine, we were trying to build that magazine. You know, all, Full Cry and American Cooner both had each had about 3,000 or 30,000 subscribers, and we were sitting here uh, with the little house organ at UKC with 3000 subscribers and about all we had in there every month was some rules and breed standards and things like that. And I don't know if you remember back to those days, but it sure wasn't much. So started looking for some ways, you know, to, to kind of build the readership and have a reason for people to buy the magazine. And I kind of fell on this idea of doing product reviews. Okay. So, you know, and I try to do, and I put disclaimers up, up one side and down the other that, you know, the, these are just in, in layman's terms. I'm not an engineer. I don't understand, uh, all the, uh, electronic and chemical terms and all these things. I'm just going to take this product out and use it and tell you how it performed in my hands. Had an old boy up in Northern Illinois. One time he, Contacted me, said Steve. I got the b- latest and greatest light you've ever seen, and he said, "I it's a vest light. It it you carry it in on a vest. You wear the vest, and you got, uh, uh you know, and it, it's just it's phenomenal. And I want to send it to you. I'd like you to do a review on it for me." I said, "Well, are you mass producing this thing? I mean, have you got, you know? uh Well, this is a prototype. I want to send you," he says. So,, in a few days, the mailman brings this thing, and first of all, you can tell it's been leaking in this uh in this package, you know or it looked like somebody'd set it down in a puddle of water or something. But anyway, we get into this and I tear it open, and here is some kind of a vest for sure, and in the pocket of this vest is a plastic one quart oil can a plastic oil can like you go into uh, a convenience store and buy a quart of oil to put in the old rig so you can get home from the coon hunt, you know. And he's got a battery down in there, and he's got this all duct taped together, and he's got a wire coming up through the spout, up through the spout of the oil can. And then this cord comes up here, to a conglomeration on the headpiece that looks like one of those real old old you remember when you could get a headpiece that it would work on a nine volt rail or uh, what were those uh square railroad batteries that had the two little springs on the top of oh them?
0: oh uh, <laughs> oh god I don't
1: remember what they were called. But this was what this gentleman had put together. And he wanted me to do a product review on this thing he was got. So, you know, it runs the full gamut from that sort of thing out there. At least that's where we've been, Ray, in this business. You won't Uh,
0: believe, Steve, some of the stuff I've opened up and seen, you know, (laughs) a customer. We've always been the type, even if it's not mine, if I possibly can fix it and I'm at an event or somewhere, I'll be glad to take a look, you know, mm-hmm. and see what I can do. And most of the time we can do something with it, but I have opened up stuff that it' the awfulest bird nest you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. And, you know, nowadays using lithium batteries and, um, the technology continues to improve and, you know, there's safety features that have to be built into the products and, mm. You gotta make sure that that you take care of all that. And so it's it it really somebody that's that's not really up on all that really shouldn't try that. Because if if they do, they're gonna cause a problem. Exactly. End. Exactly. They're gonna cause a problem.
1: Well that brings up my next question to you. I know that each year It's kind of the word on the street. Well, it's Autumn Oaks time. What's Ray got new this year? (laughs) (laughs) And you keep coming out with these new products year after year after year. Uh, What what about that process?
0: Well, you know, Steve, like I told you, I spend most evenings if I'm not out hunting. uh, Me and the wife got to the point we don't cook very much anymore. We usually go out and grab something to eat. Come on back home, and then I lay back in that recliner and watch, look at that stuff. And she gets mad at me because I'm not talking to her enough. You know how that goes. And, <laughs> um, and we just continue. You've been to my house, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. We just continually work on new development. Hmm. I, I work on it every day. We have seven eight lights i guess at this point in time that are ready for market now that don't mean that all of them will ever make it to the market because there may be something that that comes out that's better than it is and uh at that point we'll we'll make those decisions but i i'm always gonna have something you know better every year all right that that's that's what I charge myself with doing, making one good improvement every year. Uh, because, you know, these customers are, they're, they're paying a lot of money for these lights, you know, three to $400 for a light now. And, uh, I got customers that buy new lights every single year. They come in, they'll trade, trade their old one in, or a lot of times that old one gets passed to a kid or a child somewhere and they buy a new one and, and, Boy, I appreciate those customers. They they they've helped me so much. But you know when they the customers look forward to that. We pull up most of the time. We can't even get the trailer unloaded because people want to see what I've got. What you know, and they they're buying them. Grand American this year. I mean, we had five lights left for Saturday morning. We were done nine thirty Saturday morning. We didn't have any more product. Automotes this past year we sold out at 230 on Friday afternoon. I mean, they just and I wish that I could bring enough but I just can't build that many. We just cuz we we're not going to scrimp on the quality of them, you know, so and there's just four of us that build them, four employees, me and three other employees, two guys and one lady. And all my employees are long-term employees, been with me a long time. Uh Wes, who everybody sees the most, been with me fifteen years. Uh there was an older gentleman before him, uh, that was with me about fifteen years and he's in his eighties now and in a memory care facility, but super guy, Duke Energy retiree, right, tie back to Duke Energy again. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's uh it's a family affair. We don't operate like a, you know, a big corporation. We it's a family affair around here right pretty much you know and you know i've just been so blessed you was talking about your start with ukc i was gonna bring this up to you steve you know i've been a master hounds for ukc as long as i can remember i Mm -hmm. i mean it's been a lot of years and um you know that's one thing that i've always enjoyed and i've always i've done a lot of hunts i don't do that many anymore um you know, do one for the local club here once in a while or whatever, but I get invited a lot of times to do larger events now, and boy, I really appreciate the people putting their, you know, putting their trust in me to take care of their events like that, and, you know, I've been heavily involved in the Black and Tan Association, Uh, I've been involved of the Sacral State Championship hunt, I've been involved in putting it on for 25 years i'm actually the hunt director of that one now and and uh back in 05 i think it was or 06 they inducted me into the south carolina state championship hall of fame down there and, awesome oh yeah it was a great great thing to see and and then uh last year the the state association of south carolina who's also ran by a close friend of mine and yours together mr mckee uh they introduced me into the South Carolina hall of fame last year. Um, and I, like I say, I'm just so blessed. I, I sit back so many times. My dad died pretty early. He was only 60 when he passed. Uh, but the little boy in me, that's still in me. Uh, I, a lot of times I think to myself, I just wish my dad would have lived long enough oh, yeah. to see something. Oh yeah. it, you know? Oh, and I, yeah. I feel that pull at my heart a mm. lot of times. Uh, You know, I've been president of the Black and Tan Association, and I ain't going to say the other associations aren't no good because I've never been involved in them, but I can tell you the Black and Tan Association is loaded with top-notch people. I'm talking about people that care not only about hunting, they care about you as a person, your life, and I've got friends all over the country because of the Black and Tan Association. Right. You know, I think
1: a lot of coon hunters miss a great opportunity when they don't get involved in their (laughs) National Breed Association. And of course, you guys are particularly fortunate in the Black and Tan Association to have had some outstanding leadership down through the years. You know, I look all the way back to my first introduction with the Black and Tan Association was in 1983 when I came to work full-time at UKC, began to attend the board meetings and attend the, the general membership meetings and meeting the officers. And I could go down the list, and boy, I'd sure miss some great people if I tried to do that. But the leadership in that organization, and I know you've served as its president And and on its board and so forth, it has been top notch. And any organization is only as good as its leadership. And so, yeah. You know,
0: Steve, I've uh, not to interrupt. I apologize, I interrupted you. But you stepped on a point there that I thought might need to be emphasized. You know, you see, sometimes the same person. Ends up being the president or the or or running an association for a long, long time. And one thing that the the black and tan group has done, and and I'll give I'll give Carl Meinhardt his credit. Carl wrote our uh oh, God, it slipped my mind. Now what you call it? Our, our, our charter, our rules, whatever you want to call it, and uh, our constitution. That's yes. what you call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Carl wrote that, and there has been and procedures that have been added, you know, to how we do business in the Black and Tan Association. But if you think about it, from the time I went on the board of the Black and Tan Association until I finished up as president, I had about eight years involved moving through those progressions to get – so by the time I got to be president, I knew exactly how business is supposed to be took care of and what to do with that. And, and you know, the Black Tan Association, you can only be president two years in a row. You can be president as many times as you want, but only two years in a row. So it's a constant changing of the guard every two years. But the guard that's changing is coming from this bullpen down here that has been through and knows what to do. And it, it brings fresh ideas in when new leaders get in, and I attribute the success of the Black and Tan Association truly to how how it's managed. is it, is just a the, you can't you can't put words into it. Just what it takes to make all that work, and the people take pride. You know, if you're a past president, and there's some kind of problem going on. You can look up. Somebody's getting ready to call you and ask some advice, and you know it's just a great thing and i i hope that they all run like that i don't know but um it sure is a, a pretty cool thing to watch
1: well it is and it's it's uh, an amazing thing to watch and to see uh the way the meetings are conducted and the way that the event you know when i when i went to ukc and people may not believe this, and I don't know what the standing is right now, what the uh, the, the numbers are. But there was a time back in the early mid-80s when the two largest coon hunts in the, in the United States were American Black and Tan Coonhound Days and the Texas State Championship. Those were the two largest coon hunts in the country. Wow. And, and, you know, it was nothing to see three hundred black and tan dogs go to the woods on Thursday night at black and tan days. Wow. In the heyday. You know, and and I <laughs> I know being as old as I am, people get tired of hearing this old back in the day stuff. But, you know, I was fortunate to be there and see firsthand the real golden years of coon hunting, you know, in fact, I was born right after about the time that these wild coon hunts started, you know, I was born in 1946 and I believe 47, I believe was the first ACHA world hunt, but at any rate, you know, grew up through all that. But when I went to UKC, I began to see things that I didn't, you know, I had been president of the national plot hound association for a couple of years, we had nowhere near the numbers that the black and tan people did, and to see those people, and I can I can name so many of them, and I want to right now so bad, but I know that I'm gonna I'm gonna leave some very well, important people out. There are so out, many
0: you know. of them that have contributed so much. Now mm. um, I mean contributed so much. Um, it. Yes, you could name them all if you wanted to. No, you know we just we just recently lost one that I'll mention to you that that a lot of people didn't realize how much he had to do with the UKC black and tan because he was so much involved with PKC and that's Jarvis and I know you know Jarvis.
1: William. Oh, absolutely.
0: I- and we just lost Jarvis recently, but you know Jarvis wasn't just a hard working guy in in what we do. He was a he was a visionary in, oh, in, absolutely. in in what we were doing. And, and to say what they want to, but, you know, Carl and Jarvis and some of these guys from back there in the day, they're responsible for what the Black and Tan Association is now. They're responsible for what PKC is now. And, uh, you know, I, I can't give enough gratitude to those
1: Oh, guys, we so. can't, for sure. And I was fortunate Terry Walker asked me to do a piece for this upcoming issue of uh, American Cooner Magazine, which I believe will have Jarvis on the cover, oh, and, cool. I w- and I was able to write a piece. And you know, I I thought about contacting Miss Joyce, a- and I felt that it would, might be too soon uh, because the deadlines fell, you know, right at, at, right soon after his passing but I, you know, I just began to think and think about the contributions that he made to our sport. And then I began to think of my personal interactions with him over the years when I was with UKC and then later with PKC and, and on a personal note and, and all those things. And, you know, this, our life is a story, you know, and, People are going to read that story, and and Jarvis certainly left volumes of interesting and important information for people that want to, you know, seek it out. But well,
0: you know, a uh, uh, instance that I'll just bring to mind: we uh, recently, in the Black and Tan Association, not too many years ago, started a Black and Tan Hall of Fame for for dogs, and. We wanted to add some dogs into that that came from years and years back because they deserve a lot of the credit for where we are now, and um you know, reaching out to people again like carl and and Jarvis and uh Philip and people like that that had lived through that time um I was responsible for calling a lot of these guys and talking with them and getting their input and uh just a wealth of knowledge. Just, just a wealth of knowledge, and always glad to hear you and talk with you. And, oh yeah. You, know, yeah, you know, it's just a thing. And you know, I was going to tell you too, Steve, just to kind of back up a little bit. You just talk about the size of black and tan, Day. and you know, I really don't keep up anymore with how big each breed honey is and that kind of thing as much as I should. But I can tell you that black and tan days still, and you know, we'll have a little bit going on on Wednesday night with our. Uh, what we call our champions classic hunt. And uh, we'll have a senior hunt that night as well. And a youth hunt that night as well. And then Thursday night, you know, there's a RQE and an all black hunt. And then Friday night, a open hunt. Saturday night, an open hunt. And some youth hunts sprinkled in, in between. And um, they're still hunting, you know, somewhere around 500 dogs or more over the entire weekend. Amazing. Which is uh, well, substantial. It you is substantial. And uh you can go there and walk around, uh, particularly walk around in the evening. People's got their campfires built, they're sitting around talking, and you're supposed to be invited to come over and have dinner with them. Or I mean, and you know it might be people you've never even spoken to before. It's just such a such a good family atmosphere there. And that, that's one thing I've been proud of with the Black and Tan Association.
1: Oh absolutely and uh you should be and and there again I'll reiterate what I w- mentioned earlier is if you're out there listening to this podcast you don't have to be a black and tan person you you follow your breed of choice uh there's seven of them now and, and get involved in your national association because you're going to meet friendships. You're going to network with people that you're going to, going to, uh, end up, uh, uh, counting them friends for life. And, uh, it's just a great experience and to be able to go. That was the thing that my dad and I shared together for many, many years and What whetted my appetite to get involved in coon hunting uh, from an administrative standpoint was going with him each year to plot days, you know, and just being a young whippersnapper sitting around those tables, all eyes and ears, you know, listening to those legends of our breed, you know, talking about their hunts and the dogs of the past and, and all those phenomenal stories, you know, have you been keeping track how long we've been talking, Ray? I I was looking for my meter here on this uh, console, and somehow... Well,
0: Steve, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to say we probably close up around an hour or so Yeah,
1: I, I would say so. And, uh, man, it's been a great visit. I know there's things as soon as I click the the button to say goodbye on this one that there's going to be things that I'm going to... Wish that I had asked you. I do know one thing now. Are you actively do you have a dog now? Do you have a uh a, a dog do. that you're hunting? Yeah.
0: I do. I have a uh a dual grand bent grand champion, PKC champion, black and tan male dog.
1: Okay. And what do you call him?
0: Edge. Okay. Edge. Yeah, right. and he's uh he's out of a dog that I bought from Blaze Bauer out in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of three or four years ago, his name was Kansas Fred. He had done. He was a Grand Knight dog that had done quite a bit of winning in PKC as well. And I bought him from Blaze and brought him here. And then uh another stalwart in the Black and Tan Association sold me a female, uh a Grand Knight female. Her name was uh, Alexis Nelson's Northern Lexus Jeff Nelson. Of course, and uh, and I bred those two dogs. Uh. And had a litter of pups out of, them. well, I sold this puppy, the dog that I have now, I sold him to a friend in North Carolina, and he trained him and and made a really good dog out of him, and he ran into a situation where he needed to needed to sell him, so I bought him from him and uh and he's here now, and i don't I guess he'll be here from now on, but yes, yeah, always pretty nice too, to be the breeder of the dog that you got and oh, you know, yeah yeah, it's just like I say, it's just a, just a fun thing to be involved in, but yeah, I do still hunt, I still, my truck stays dirty all winter, I got tracking collars, thrown all over the back seat, a rifle in the case, Uh, you know, my waders is wet most of the time, Uh, yeah, we, uh, I still get out there and get with it, although I'm not quite as quick as I used to be going through the woods and all, I I still enjoy it, and I still get out there. I love to hear a dog come treat as much as anybody in the world. Um You know, there's things about dogs that I think about from yesteryear that I think maybe are better than dogs from from now. And But, you know, as a whole, I would have to say there's probably more dogs alive on the planet now that are capable of tree a coon than any time in history because hmm. about all of them are running tree that are born. That. Yeah, that
1: that's something that we discussed a little bit, I think, this, uh, this week in a podcast about the fact that there was a time when you had a pretty good odds of getting a dud out of a litter of pups. You know, you kind of had to... It was potluck to try to come up, you know, with a good one. But nowadays, you can just about close your eyes and put your hand across, you know, point your finger and pick one out of that litter. And there's pretty good odds he's going to start anyway. He's going to make some kind of dog. It might not be your your dog of a lifetime, but he's going to run
0: a You're tree. Exactly coon. Right. You're yeah. exactly right. There, Just about anyone is capable to tree a coon. You know, if you... Put the proper training in it it'll be capable of coon. That don't mean you're gonna like the dog, but the dog right. will run and tree. I mean, I'm you going back and I know you can too. The dogs, I can remember one. We had one dog that ran track real good, <laughs> and, but it would not tree hardly. So we had another dog that didn't run track very well, but he treed good. So mm-hmm. we'd have to take both of them to coon. <laughs> That's right. And you know, nowadays you don't have to do that so much.
1: Yeah, they used to have the old thing called the buddy hunt, you know, where you go and you and a buddy, you know, and you'd combine your score. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, times have changed, that's for sure, and they'll continue to change. And I'm going to bet that as long as we're coon hunting and as long as somebody's building a light out there, Ray will come out with something new (laughs) for the coon hunters to try.
0: I guarantee you it's coming. Look for it.
1: Well, you said something a while ago. I can't pass up just the opportunity to try to be funny. I was a class clown when I was in school, if you can imagine that. But old buddy of mine up in West Virginia, Whitey Smith, Whitey had a dog called Spring Creek Rock, too, that he used to promote big time in the magazines and all. And Whitey's quite a character, you know. And he called me one day and he said, Steve, you know, as I've got older, I have got so much quicker. In the woods, it's just amazing. I said, what do you mean, Whitey? He said, man, it used to be I could catch my toe on a root or something, and I would stumble for 30 feet down through the woods before I fall. He said, "Now I just fall instantly. (laughs) (coughs) My goodness. So so I guess maybe that's where you get (laughs) it. I've still got a few years on you, Ray.
0: I'm not stumbling around too bad. That's good. But it's, I know the feeling. I seem like I catch a few more roots than I used to.
1: Well, a walking stick has become my friend, and uh, I just ha- hardly ever get it. My dad used one in the latter years, and I didn't question him much about it, or why are you using that stick, Dad? That was his thing and, and all, you know, but I found out that that's a godsend right there. Uh, especially, you throw a little vertigo in the mix when you look up, and you look back up over your head, trying to find that coon, you know, and and, and your world starts spinning. Uh, but anyway, we're going to do it as long as we can, as long as guys like you will build us something to see oh, with absolutely. out there. And,
0: yeah. Absolutely, Steve. And, and, you know, if I know you're getting ready to wind up, and that's great. I've enjoyed being on your podcast. I want you to know I appreciate you inviting me. And if you'd like me to come again sometime when you get them questions, write them down, I'll be more than happy to uh but i want you to understand that as i sit here and talk to you um i feel like i'm talking to one of the legends of the business oh boy. And, and i feel <laughs> and i know that you are and I, and I want to give you your credit where you're due because i'm telling you right now steve fielder's done a lot for coon hunting whether it be ukc pkc akc i mean it's just a unbelievable amount of Work that you've put in at these different registries and things that, that people are still reaping rewards from today. And, uh, so include yourself in that when you start talking about, you know, Jarvis or whoever, uh, Steve Fielder's right up there as well. I
1: appreciate you. Well, Ray, you're very, very kind. I appreciate that so much, my friend. I appreciate you taking time from your busy day today. I know you've got some new ventures that we'll talk about the next time that we're on here. Uh, and uh, there definitely will be a next time because we've left a lot of stuff on on the table that we could have talked about but I do want to thank you Ray for coming on to the Gone to the Dogs podcast today sharing the bright eyes story with our listeners and uh, and folks if you need a good light uh, to keep you from stumbling around out there in the dark like I do give old Ray here a call he'll fix you right up I guarantee you well, folks, that's going to wrap it up for another episode of the Gone to the Dog podcast. If you see somebody along the road and they stop you and they say, hey, where's Fielder? You just tell them, he's gone to the dogs.